Welcome to Dig It. This is Edge with my co-host Corey Lynn of Corey's Digs. And today we have a very special guest. Elza Van Hamlin is back with us. I'm going to hand it over to Corey to introduce Elza. Yay. I'm so excited. I have been waiting a long time for you to finish this report on the Dutch farmers and fishermen. And I'm sure everyone wants to hear what's going on because you are in the Netherlands. And so you got to actually speak with them firsthand. So before we get into this, though, if you can introduce yourself um, and just kind of let people know, we had you on to go over your big farmer report too, and, and that went totally viral. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners are already familiar with you, but if you can just give a little introduction. So my name is Elsa van Hamle, and I'm a researcher and a journalist for the Andere Krant, which means the other newspaper, and it's a completely reader-funded printed newspaper located in the Netherlands. And as you perhaps know, um, Catherine Austin Fitz is also located in the Netherlands often. And um, she asked me to write a deep dive about what's happening to the farmers and fishermen and not just all the policy issues, but she said, can you show the big picture? And that's what I tried to do in this very, very broad report. Yes, it is. It is a big report. And I know we were just before we started recording we were talking about how hard it is finding that cutoff point because there's so much more we can always get in there. And then we're like, oh, we're going to have to leave that to the side because this is getting way too long. So how long were you working on this? And I'm curious when you set out to do this, did how many farmers or fishermen did you meet with and kind of tell us a little bit about the process of, of putting this information together? It was kind of an organic process because first we just wanted to have some pictures of farmers and fishermen, like a bi, bio, bi, uh, how do you say it? Bio, biographical? Biography. Uh, yeah. And then I thought, well, while we're talking with them, perhaps we should ask more about how they view their own situation. Um, so that was kind of an organic process. And you see there's a lot of difference there, there are different agricultural models and based on what model the farmers are in and what kind of news they uh, absorb, they have a very different assessment about their situation and about how just or unjust the current regulations are. Um, and then simultaneously, I kind of found that, that the underpinning narrative about um about like in the netherlands the the dutch farmers they need to move from their land because there's an assumed nitrogen crisis and i noticed that the underlying narrative is the whole time about man is uh is dangerous to nature so nature needs to be protected from men and i i wondered like okay where is this coming from and i also thought okay we know how harmful industrial agriculture is but not all agriculture is harmful. And I believe that nature does best when man and nature work together. So I was curious about the roots of the system of industrial agriculture. And I dove into that. So that's kind of like the historic background. And then what I uncovered, well, perhaps then I'm diving too deep already, but I'll, I'll, I'll do the broad outline and then we can dive into the separate points. 
basically the the industrial model is completely new in history it, it, agriculture has never been done before the the tryout the, the system was kind of developed by the rockefeller foundation um before world war ii and during and then after the second world war it became um, a, um, a focus or, or, or like a top priority of U.S. foreign policy to dominate the world food markets. And they basically did that by implementing this system of industrial agriculture top down. And in the global south, this was done as the Green Revolution. But in the Western Europe, this was done through martial aid money uh, to rebuild Europe after the Second World War. Interesting fact is that also this martial aid was on a condition of more European cooperation. Um, but what this had as a result was very rapid urbanization, complete uprooting of uh, rural um, communities and um, enormous destruction of nature. Because before uh, before this major overhaul, all farms were... were um, mixed farms, they were small scale, there were animals um, and um, agriculture and uh, on small plots of land. And uh, yes, this was completely changed in this kind of like modernization project. And what do you see then? That uh, in 1976, the UN recognizes that there's a lot of environmental destruction and there is a problem of, um, of rapid urbanization. And they initiate a conference called Habitat One. Hmm. And this is very interesting to read these conference materials because basically say, uh, well, now uh, we call upon all governments to start um managing human settlement and uh human settlement can only by be managed by controlling the land and so if you read this document it's basically an attack on property rights now fast forward you have follow-up un conferences the, the rio conference and you see that by this un top-down policy that is implemented through national governments, but also through armies of NGOs on local and regional levels, that what we see um, as nature protection, so the farmers could needed to get off the land because there's too, they are near uh, protected areas and there's too much nitrogen deposition near these areas, so that's why they need to go. But this is basically a UN agenda to get people off the, to, off the land into cities that are basically more and more smart cities that are turning into digital prisons. And then all the land that's still there is being put under UN control as uh, protected natural areas. So I go into this, yeah, into this whole history. And in the end, it even ties into CBDCs. So I think this is a very small... The, the shortest summary I can give. <laughs> oh, one, one thing, so in the end, I'll also tie together to, to how the major famines of the last century were not because of natural disasters, but they were because of large-scale social engineering projects, such as in Soviet Russia and Mao's uh, Great Leap Forward. Um and if you look at what's happening now, there are a lot of uh, similarities. So that's right. kind of like a point of caution. 
Yeah, this has been a pattern for a very long time in multiple countries. And I would argue that the the Rockefellers, uh, like you pointed out, are are very, very much behind all of this. Um, I have a friend in Brazil who's probably listening, uh, <laughs> who who could share all kinds of stories with us about what they've done over there in the Amazon. Uh, so, okay, so so the pattern with with the history of this, though, to to just go a little deeper before yeah. we get into the conversations you had with the farmers and the fishermen there. And I find the fishermen part of this interesting too, because that's mm-hmm. almost worse than what they're doing to the farmers. Yes. Um, so the, the patterns then bringing up through the years, a little more current than what they seem to do is say, well, you have to, you know, we're now going to put these policies and regulations in place and you have to do this because mm-hmm. we need to protect the environment. So then they come up with something wonderful mm-hmm. and they, they abide by it, these new rules and regulations. And then they say, well, no, you're not doing it right. Now we got to flip back. It's like this constant flipping mm-hmm. back yes. and forth. And maybe if you want to share a few details on that, <laughs> I, I think, because I think this is really important for people to be able to spot the patterns and see, you know, they get them so caught up in that trap of just they're trying to work, they're trying to run their business. And then all of a sudden, boom, this is thrown at them. And now they have to adjust. And then, Mm -hmm. and then we find, you know, a lot of farmers selling because Mm -hmm. of this. Yes. So, so I think what's important to realize yet again, kind of like a step back. So I start the, 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 I start with this history and you had the, the Great Britain as an empire that was trying to occupy colonies and this was not working. And when the US took over as an empire, they didn't, well, they still have occupying uh, armies, but the first uh, first line of attack was kind of to institute a, an, a system of economic colonization through processes of globalization and the organ uh, and the organizations that manage it so instead of like directly using force the 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 tyranny is imposed through policies through regulations and when i listen to what's happening to the farmers and fishermen i and and currently i was i i was uh reading up on for example cj hopkins he is a satirist who is being persecuted in uh, Germany for posting satire. Um, so we don't have like SS troops uh, in the streets. Uh, they're not people disappearing into torture prisons or, well, not in the Western countries. So there, we don't have a li- lot of overt physical violence or use of force in that way. But the tyranny right now is really imposed through bureaucracy, through lawfare, through policies, through legislations that are all fundamentally unjust and um, put the rule of law upside down. Like uh, James Corbett called this, it's not the law, uh, rule of law, it's the law of rule. Mm-hmm. So to come back to your question about what's happening to these farmers, so 
be, the the purpose of this industrial agriculture was that they said we needed to produce surpluses. So you get this surplus production, the margins drop, and then all these uh, farmers are in a difficult financial position. And then this was again subsidized and then there was overproduction. So this whole market was distorted. And what happened in the EU was that all the farmers got quotas and it was a heavily um, managed market. Then in, I don't, yeah, Perhaps I'm wrong in the years, but somewhere in 2008 or 2009, they said we can drop the milk quotas. The farmers are allowed to grow their amount of cattle right now. And so there's this whole system around it, like the banks, the agricultural advisors, the um, agriculture um, education system, um, the, uh, the unions. So they will also they were all saying to the farmers, you can grow by at least 20%. The bank will give you a loan. They were all pushed to grow because that's what you do if you want to make more money, because that kind of like it's a system that they're in. And then all these farmers uh, went into debt and started growing. And then at the moment that they were allowed to start producing more, like I think two or three months later, they say, well, all this, uh, these increases in cattle, it's producing too much phosphate. So all the farmers get a phosphate uh, kind of like a restriction, emission, like an emission, uh, maximum emission target. And this bankrupted a lot of very small, small uh, mixed farmers that didn't have a phosphate problem at all. And um, then after this phosphate uh, issue, and there, there were more, so so the farmers, multiple farmers that I talked to also said, we have so much administration that they ha have to hire professional consultants to to help them out with just, um, just being in compliance. So they say, well, we kind of feel like criminals. Of course, we need to show that that we're taking well care of our animals and we're doing everything by the rules and there's food safety, but this is at a level that it's kind of like uh, making their work difficult. Mm. And so what happens after this phosphate policy, so that was in 2015 or 16, is that in 2019, they, they say, well, there is a nitrogen emission problem uh, and that again is also a story um, on itself. But um, so we have all these natural areas, and they they say we they have a certain amount of biodiversity or a certain type of nature. And if there's too much nitrogen there, it's um, it's it's bad for that protected area. So the 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 farms that are bordering these protected areas, they need to go if they have too much nitrogen. But how do they measure this? It's with a very convoluted model uh, where, it, where if you fill in a baseline of zero, then the farmers still have too many cows. So um, this, this model has been very contested. And what's interesting is that um, just across the German border, they don't have this nitrogen problem. 
they don't use this model. Right. Ni nitrogen just <laughs> stops being a problem is right at the border. Yes. That's how that works. That's science, right? You trust the science. Yes. And follow the science. There's a consensus. This is the Dutch consensus. No, but anyways, so the, the, the farmers, and so that's the big, and then they say, well, we have to um, have the amount of cattle in the whole country. Um, so, and yeah, so that's the, the farmers and that, that kind of gave rise to all these farmers protests that were, that were also covered in the international news. But what's also behind it is that it's a very complicated story because it's a land grab, it's an attack on the food system. And at the same time, we do have this legacy of industrial agriculture that has a lot of real environmental problems. But um, I believe the solution is not to disown farmers. So this is kind of like the farmer's policy deluge. But what, what's happening with the fishermen is almost even, no, it is worse. So um, first there was Brexit and the uh, fishermen started losing fishing grounds. There are already a number of uh, uh, offshore wind parks and uh, the fishermen cannot fish there. And because we have this energy transition, there are major plans to, to increase uh, offshore winds, which is also interesting because this is an enormous intervention in the nat natural ecosystem. And you don't hear any of these environmental um, NGOs about it in on a level that's really critical, um, whereas the farmers are a problem uh, and the fishermen are a problem because of bottom trawling, but but 30,000 windmills to to industrialize the sea, that's that's good because yeah, it helps. Yeah. That, that's, that's insanity. I know there's, I don't know if it was released yet. Uh, there's a documentary coming out, um, forgive me, but I can't even remember who it's by right now. But on the issue with the whales, you know, mm, yeah. um, all the whales showing up dead and, and uh, yeah, it's a big problem because I looked into the contracts with the minerals, my, you know, the mining of the ocean and dis disrupting that entire ecosystem. And now mm. you got them coming in and, and they pouring the concrete in and putting in these giant turbines, uh -huh. um, which is a massive hoax. And I'm, confident there's something else going on there so oh, what's interesting is mm -hmm. these turbines they change the wind flows exactly before the coast and it uh, influences the how the clouds form and now there's research in germany that shows that because they have the map of droughts and they have the location of the winter parks uh, this is on the land um, I read this after publishing this report, so this is not in the report, but uh, there is a lot of evidence that the wind turbines are causing droughts. Yeah. And that the, 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 the influence on the, the, because they catch wind and they take energy out of the air and they change all the, everything that's happening, the, the, the wind streams, uh, so they have an effect on global climate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the amount uh, of you talked about how the amount of cement that they use to put these wind termites in, and how it just absolutely devastates the devastates the bottom of the the ocean where mm -hmm. they're put. 
and also how the fishermen can't even use that area because it would, even if they were to take the wind turbines down, which they'll eventually have to do to replace them because they have a, a lifespan, the fishermen would still not even be able to use that area because it would catch their nets, right? Yes. Um, yes, exactly. So, uh, yes. So they lost uh, ground because of Brexit, because of the wind turbines, and then there are also protected areas in the sea. So I found one report because I was looking at one map, but you, you when you go to the government site, there are so many policy documents and a lot of them are just not well synthesized. But fortunately, this other organization had done this. And they showed like if we put all the policies together, plans together on one map and there's no space left. It's basically just wind turbines and protected areas and sea lanes and some military activity. They're allowed to dig for sand because a lot of sand is taken from the ocean floor, but they didn't even have a place for fishermen. It's not considered a priority. That's right. unbe unbelievable. So, so now tell us about some of the, um, the regulations, the other regulations that they're putting on fishermen and quotas. And I know that you had also talked about um, some equipment that they had developed that was a perfect yes. solution. <laughs> That's a very interesting story. Um, well, first of all, so there's a lot of surveillance. They're all tracked by GPS. And um, they... Um, they, of course, have fishing quotas. Then there's a landing obligation. So when um, when the, the fishermen fish, when it's not like on the open ocean, they have bottom trawlers and they trawl, they trawl a beam through the floor and then the fish, they, they start, they come out of the sand and then there's a net and the fish go into this net. So the nature uh, organizations say this bottom uh, this bottom disturbance is very bad, um, but the the fishermen see this differently. But when they catch their fish, they have a lot of bycatch that they they cannot sell. It's too small, so they first bring it on board. But everything that they can't sell, they put overboard again. And about half this is then still alive. It's little fish and they can swim and go, uh, yeah, go on with their lives. And now the uh, European Union said, well, this bycatch is a problem. And because we want to discourage this bycatch, all the fishermen need to, need to bring it back on board to the land. And let <laughs> all the little fish die. Yes. Makes Unbelievable. No sense. No. <laughs> so, so it's okay. It's okay to disturb, you know, the seabed with, with wind turbines and mining mm -hmm. because yeah. we need, you know, the cobalt and all the minerals to make our batteries, but, mm -hmm. but for fishing to feed people, absolutely not safe. No, no, exactly. And what they say, what the fisherman said is, he said, well, you know, when there are rocks, there are corals to the rocks, there's other kind of life. We don't fish there. It breaks our nets. We don't want to disturb that. But if it's just sand, he says the, 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 the North Sea is basically a big sandbox. So if there's a big northern storm, the sand moves. 
when um when there's a wave that you just see like one meter above the uh, yeah from from above on the ocean it has a wave that goes seven meters deep that again kind of pushes the sand around so these fishermen also tell you that they these dunes move like sometimes you see a shipwreck and sometimes it's it's not there um so they, they say it, it yeah so the sand is moving the whole whole time so they don't see their activity as that disturbing and it was actually a very interesting case study that's not in the report but that was in the interviews and um together with the government the fishermen agreed to not fish in a very large area because they said this way the small fish they will have the opportunity to grow and we won't fish there and when they're adult enough we will fish outside that area but interestingly that whole area went completely empty after the fishermen start stopped fishing there hmm hmm Interesting. Yeah, I, w I found it also interesting about how much the fishermen are surveilled. Constant yes. surveillance and through various means. Can you just talk about that a bit? Yeah, so there's the GPS and they have to weigh everything that they catch. But now that there are, there are concerns that they don't bring, they, they are not complying with the landing obligation. So they want to bring cameras on board. Um. So, and then there was the war, sorry, this is not about the surveillance, but then there was the war in Ukraine and the energy prices skyrocketed. And so these boats, they um, they use a lot of gasoline. And so their price uh, increased five times or more. So the a lot of fishermen then didn't even go, went out to catch fish because uh, it was too expensive to do so. So you had all this this whole policy assault oh wait and then you asked about the innovation so there there's an innovation where they thought like instead of disturbing the sea bottom if we have a very very low electrical pulse it kind of stirs the fish just like you sometimes have around like the where, where cattle is gra grazing but, but even smaller and the the fish jump out of the 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 bottom but it you don't need to draw a beam through it and um and they combine that with something that's called a sum wing so so this net kind of floats above the the sea floor so again it's not disturbing the bottom but what this this innovation did was that it could reduce over 50 percent in gasoline use there was no bottom disturbance uh, you could catch fish much more selectively. Um, it, it was much more efficient. And there was a temporary approval, but everyone was very, there was a lot of research into this innovation. So it really appeared that it was going to be fully approved. And, and it was very was, expensive too, right? This yes, equipment? it was a, a, like 150K for a small boat. No. Um. But if that's an investment that halves your energy price. Right. Um, but then uh, there was a very aggressive lobby from France and they don't have an advanced uh, fleet. And uh, but they have a lot of political clout in the EU. 
and there was a media campaign showing like all kinds of electrocuted fish and how damaging this whole innovation was. And this innovation won sustainability prices because it was like very innovative. Um, yeah, but then they, they said, no, we have to ban this technology. So all these fishermen invested in this and then they were not allowed to use it. But then, then this price hikes up. Imagine you invested 150K Ugh. and you know you have this innovation and it will have your energy costs and you're not allowed to use it. Unbelievable. These, these people are just not monsters. Only, and not only that, but yeah, it, it, it's, it would be more environmentally friendly to use this technology because you're right, not disturbing Which is the not seafloor. what they want. Nope. It's, right. it's all the issues that they've been asking for. Right. And yes. so and so now you've got um aren't they tell us about as far as the government saying, well, we're gonna pay you to decommission your boat or we're gonna pay you to shut down your farm or what's happening on that end. So that's the most nasty thing. So um so with the farmers, they uh, they when they're located na near these nature zones, then there is a um, they will offer to buy out the farmers, and they say this is a very um, generous offer. I think it's between a hundred um, hundred percent of the of the worth of the farm or hundred twenty, but it has a caveat because. These farms are located near protected areas, so they're not allowed to do anything there. So the value of their property already was halved. So they get 100% of half of their property, wow. which is not full compensation. And of course, if it, it, yeah, this is another thing. If you're talking about these farmers and to, to these farmers and fishermen, these activities are a heritage. You asked, like, how long have you been doing this? And they said, well, my father did this. My grandfather did this. They they, they can't remember how far back this goes. This this is, like, really deep line into history. Um, so, but what they, they do after all this regulatory assault is that with the farmers, they offer to buy them out. And last year, there not that many farms are interested, but now many more are. I can't think of the numbers, but they want to buy out uh, 3,000 farms, which is a lot. Yeah. Uh, but with the fishermen, it's even more not. And so it's on the condition when you sell your farm, it's on the condition that you won't start a new farm in the Netherlands or. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, and, and so there are very few farmers left and most farmers are pretty old. So we don't have a lot of people in society that know how to grow food. And right. how to right. these, these are going to be, these are going to soon be lost skills in every country. You right. know, I mean, I can't even imagine in 50 years from now, if this keeps up, it's it's going to be a, a lost skill. I mean, who's going to be around to, you know, to teach all this? Everything's going to move to the industrialized or the 3D or the lab grown. And Unless. 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 Who listen mm. to this, think of, we should not allow this to happen. That's right. Uh, but what they do with the fishermen is that they said, well, um, 
we offer like a, a subsidy and so this is there there is the the small boats from the fisheries there's the larger boats for, with the bottom trawling and then there's kind of the boats at the open sea or, or this is very rough division but so the the, the mid-sized boats um they said yeah we offer a subsidy on the condition that you destroy your boat and wow. on the condition that they turn in their quotas and um and they're not allowed to start a fishery for the next five years they can't even sell their boat they have to literally destroy it and these boats they are magnificent they're really beautiful i asked one of the fishermen i said i i said how old is this boat and he said older than i am i was like 1985 or something and I said, how long can this boat last? And he said, over 100 years, if you maintain it well. You know, that just sounds almost symbolic, like a ritual, doesn't it? Like a right. ritual type thing. We want you to destroy it and just and just put the energy to rest and let everyone know this is this industry's done. Well, because I have to cry when I heard this, because what I really believe is that um, this is a form of psychological warfare. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. Because, you know, this boat, it's not just the boat. It's not like, you know, like if you have a business, you love that business. It's your livelihood. It's it's mm -hmm. your livelihood. It's, it's, um, they love culture. their work. It's their culture. It's their heritage. It's, it's what their family does. It's what the whole community does. So I interviewed this, this other fisherman, Yuri Post. And he lives uh, at Urk, it's a, a former island. And I also asked him, uh, talked with him about the, the community, but it's really still a very, very tight-knit community with uh, very religious also. And uh, I asked him, uh, this is a little side talk, but I thought it's interesting. I said, what happened during COVID? in your community, because this was like a big outlier uh, that didn't go along with all the madness. And he said, well, after there was the first COVID patient, all of us were very alert because we thought what's going to happen now. But because they have such a tight community, they know everyone's medical history. So they know if somebody had like three heart surgeries or bad lung problems or any other kinds of issues. So they meet every Sunday in church. And then the Monday after that, I think it's a big gossip piece. Like everything goes round in the community. And I think it was very clear for them very quickly that, um, that COVID was not a big health threat if you weren't already like had serious health issues. And then there was the other part that he said, because it, they have a very strong faith. And he said, we believe in God and in Jesus and our time is given us to us by God. Hmm. So they were not afraid to die. Right. That's up to God when you pass away or not. And he said, and we have a faith of brotherly love. So if somebody is dying or is ill, then you sit next to the bed and you hold each other's hand. And you don't right. put them in a plastic cage. That's right. And and then I thought, oh, that's interesting. Because all of us, like city people, 
we were like in our houses, isolated, looking at the black screen and getting our reality from the black screen. And I realized, hey, they have a reality check outside this whole digital world. Like they have a reality check in their community. And not, right. not a lot of us still have that. And that's also something that the farmers and fishermen still carry. That's very essential, I believe. Yeah. And so when you ask them to ask a to destroy the boat, because I also asked them, so how do you build this new? I said, you can't, can't right now. It, it's so many resources, a lot of manpower. It's just an enormous amount of investment. But you ask them to destroy this heritage. Right, right. Just and here, personal evil. property, as you've spoken about with Catherine Austin Fitz, personal property is the key towards autonomy towards sovereignty to, to freedom essentially mm -hmm. yes it, it allows you to not be dependent on the government and i think that's really what it's getting at although it accomplishes so many other things as you just mentioned on a symbolic level of what that boat represents the heritage the community the you know the family history um all that it represents um mm. but but it accomplishes a really a pragmatic goal for them of eliminating your sense of freedom and autonomy right yes it's and it's just breaking their spirit you know yes. that's that's their the, their ultimate goal they want they want to break everyone down um because, I'm, yeah, I'm, let you, yeah i'm curious how many where are we at with you said that there weren't a lot of farmers uh selling last year but now this year they're wanting to buy up like three thousand farms I think, I think it's about 200 that have applied which is a lot i believe but not as much as they want so you, mm -hmm. sorry i was just gonna say do you know like are there rough numbers on how many farms because i know Netherlands is the second largest producer of food. So is how many farms? And I mean, there's, of course, there's your farmers and your regenerative farms, and then there's your big ag. But do we know what kind of what those numbers are there? So Netherlands is the second largest exporter. Right, right. Um, and uh, I think it's about 200 that have applied now. 200 farms. But I would have to look it up. Okay. Um, but with the fishermen, so there used to be, yeah, I don't have the, the numbers, but with the fishermen, I think like more than half of the fleet has applied for destruction. Oh. So we only have, have like 40 boats left and 30 of those boats are, are uh, large board, uh, boats. Wow. Um, so this means that, um, uh, very soon we won't be able to get fresh fish for a reasonable price right it will be farmed fish or it will be imported but yeah they, they are there there won't there won't be any boats or it'll be genetically grown fish yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right right <laughs> there's so many things that they're accomplishing um it, it's not just control of the food supply on a grander scale it seems they're wanting to just really get control of all of the assets, all of the people, eliminate opportunities for personal freedom, um, all kind of while they're securing this this 
financial aspect of control, right? That's, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, this, these kind of go hand in hand, controlling the assets while they're resetting the financial system. Mm -hmm. And this is really terror through policy, through regulations, through through the law. Like they're they're not coming like like with the Soviet uh, agricultural uh, uh, reforms, the farmers were removed at gunpoint, but here they're just harassing everyone as long until they just feel like I need to give up now. And the very sad thing is is that it's not just the farmers and fishermen. I think. There are a lot of elder people, they can, cannot pay their energy bills. There are a lot of entrepreneurs and uh, th th that's, uh, th there's an enormous amount of economic warfare going around. And everyone feels that it's kind of like a natural phenomenon and um, they are target like it's an individual issue. Uh, and they're not seeing that this is just part of a very large war against the population. Right. 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 And I through unjust laws. Yeah. And, and the property obviously is playing a very big role because we're yeah. seeing these bigger, uh, bigger companies buying up land, buying up, uh, you know, entire condos and apartment complexes, buying up houses, converting mm -hmm. things to rentals. Um, and, you know, what is it, Edge? Is it like 70? Why do I want to say around 70% of our land has been stamped as federal land? Oh, you know, gosh. They, I don't know. It, it's it's a large amount. And it's, you know, and it's, of course, all over the minerals. But it also has to do with, the, you know, buying up the farms so so that they can't be farmed. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, property property rights, That's that's a really big part of this and the conservation and environmental companies that were all created many years ago mm -hmm. were created with the intent of, uh, you know, for every one good thing they protect, they demolish about 10 other things just, or, you know, to take control of those areas. Mm -hmm. This has been a very long thought out destruction process mm -hmm. by them. Yes. Um, so do you, here's what I want to know. I know that your report, cause this happens to me all the time too. When I'm working on a report, there's so much information and you get up to like page 20 and you're like, Oh, I just got to fit a little more in. And now you're up to page 30 and you're like, okay, at some point I have to cut this off. So are there some things that you learned um, that you didn't get worked into this report that you want to share that you think is important? Um, let me think. Well, unless you're unless you're saving that for like a part two. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, uh, there were a couple of things that were specific to the Netherlands because um, there there are policy plans uh, about the great remodeling of the Netherlands that also and where they say, well, this is basically just the start. And what was interesting, I was looking into land ownership, and all the land is like owned either by the government, individual owners, uh, institutional uh, parties. Um, but only the agricultural uh, land is considered land that's open to uh, to give a new policy destination. That's called free land. So they say, well, this stuff with the farmers was just a start because we need more wind 
also land wind parks, we need solar farms, uh, we need to build massive amount of houses because we have an influx of refugees. Um, and, um, uh, and so all these things will cost a lot of land and we need more nature protection areas because the the, the that's interesting again like the the un policy is to increase the amount of protection areas worldwide uh on land and sea uh like 30 percent of land and sea should be protected and the eu copied this goal so they say well uh in the netherlands so, so we need protected areas we have the energy transition we have the housing and basically the only free land is the land of the farmers interesting yeah yeah and going, wow. going back to the history of that i found the story about that wildlife conference in the 80s where the top bankers like the rothschilds were involved <laughs> how it went into the real agenda of you know what that meeting was about and how mm -hmm. that plays into the un's push for protected lands and what we're seeing now mm -hmm. could you could you talk about that yeah so so you have this implementation of um, of industrial agriculture and and like I said, it, it was all farming was very biodiverse. But after this, the the nature, the rural landscape had completely flattened, and um, because of the industrial model, there was this this uh, loss of of um, of people that could work on the land. Uh, so rapid urbanization. So you have this habitat conference. Um, and then they, it doesn't only stipulate where people should live, but it also stipulates where people should not live to protect nature. Um, and that's taken on in this Rio conference. And basically in the Rio conference, yeah, they start with the biodiversity convention and they say, well, we need to have these protected nature areas because there's so much environmental degradation not referencing uh, industrial agriculture. And this uh, this first biodiversity conference, uh, biodiversity convention is very um, short. So it's about 12 pages, but they say, but it's a binding treaty, but they say, well, the details will work out in a subsequent document. So the subsequent document is the biodiversity assessment, which is 1100 pages. And then in a kind of side note in these 1100 pages, and this was noted by a researcher called Michael Kaufman, is that they say, well, we need to use the wildlands project as a, as a model for ecosystem protection. So what is the wildlands project? So this was a very small uh, publication called Wild Earth by a couple of like really radical misanthropic environmentalists. One of them, the leading person was even convicted for trying to blow up power lines. So they present this wildlands vision when they say, well, we dream of a time where um, the grizzlies in America can roam freely from Canada to Mexico, uh, unencumbered by artifacts of civilization, so as roads and bridges and dams. <laughs> And uh, they kind of regret the, the loss of pre-Columbian wilderness. And real wilderness doesn't really have humans in it. And real wilderness should also have uh, large predators, so, such as grizzly bears and wolves, uh, et cetera. 
So they, they, and they say, how, how can we institute this? Well, you, we need to have protected areas. Uh, like the US already has a lot of, um, uh, it's not called these nature parks where you can hike, uh, but they say, well, this is not sufficient, but, but you need really need protected areas. And then the activities in the buffer zones around these areas need to be managed, but all these areas need to be uh, connected through corridors. And um, uh, yeah, so that's a wildlands project, but it was kind of like sneaked into the biodiversity convention. And even though it was never voted on in Congress, this, this plan was implemented, but it was also the blueprint for many other such, um, yeah, yeah. So in the, in the EU, it's called Natura, but worldwide, this, this ecological network model has been, um, implemented. And basically that's the reason why the farmers need to go, why the fishermen need to go because of this installment of all these protected areas. And in a lot of countries, it's not even going through legislative due process, but they kind of implement this through an NGO army that both subverbs uh, municipal and national legislative processes. Um, yeah, so does that answer the question? Yeah, and then I was yeah. also thinking about um, the this particular meeting in the 80s with the Rothschilds where they spoke about um, putting conservation wow. areas under UN control as collateral for a future yes. world currency. And I found that part really interesting. They were talking about yes. this back in the 80s. And we kind of see that playing out in real time today. And you even mm -hmm. kind of linked it to this war against Russia because of how much land they have, right? Yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so you have this ecological network model. And a lot of these um, these nature-protected zones are are being basically they're they're under un rule because like it's a protected area no economic activity is allowed uh nature is not allowed to degrade so the ngos move in and the ngos basically manage that property but many of these uh, ngos are like directly un affiliated so basically this the, the land comes under un control and um, and protected and some yes. have some even have i think offices in their headquarters don't they mm -hmm. yes yeah yeah and protected by immunities and privileges because it's going to yeah. extend to them so okay i just had to throw that in go ahead <laughs> um and so there is this um uh um this group that is un affiliated that proposes that says well Basically, the UN should manage all the world's resources, uh, the natural resources, in a trust. And, um, and so the global commons, they call it. So the global commons is the land, the sea, the air, the space. And you think, well, that's pretty insane. But if you see what they're doing through this ecological network approach, and at the current uh, UN goals that are really speeding up these uh, the goals for biodiversity protection, um, that's exactly what they're doing. So what was this conference in? So I was just reading about all this, like the the 
the redefining property, like private property was not allowed. It needs to be managed in the public interest. And then this ecological network approach. And then I was reading the site of uh, Joseph P. Farrell, um, Giza Death Star, it's called. And he noted a little article by RT that Russia had um, ousted World Economic, no, WWF, World Wildlife Fund. Uh, very as a, very um, big player, instrumental in yes. all of this. <laughs> very mm -hmm. big. Rockefellers. Uh, well, and uh, kind of a Nazi, uh, or well, anyways, but, um, um, so, um, so they ousted the, the World Wildlife Fund because they were undesirable and they were undermining economic and industrial activities. Huh. <laughs> uh, I, 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 yeah, I can imagine that. <laughs> so, so Dr. Farrell had a speculation because one of his readers had kind of like inadvertently uh, received this invitation for a wildlife congress in uh, in the 80s. And he thought, okay, I'll go. I'm just interested or something. And when he was there, then the Rothschilds were there and uh, Maury Strong, who everyone knows from the climate op pro probably. Um, and he listened to all these presentations where they said, well, we we need to use the World Wildlife Reserves as a collateral for a world currency. And that was in the 80s. And this man had apparently made a video out of this. And yeah, it, it, like just on itself as a story, it sounds like a weird story. But if you put all the other evidence next to it, then the plot kind of starts thickening. And then the, the speculation that Dr. Farrell added to this was that he said, this is also where this war uh, with Russia or officially with Ukraine, but of course this is between the US or the globalists and Russia. Um, Russia has the largest, it's the largest landmass country in the world and has enormous wealth of natural resources. So if you want to install this uh, this digital currency with this type of collateral, they they do want to they need the, the, those Russian assets. Um, so it makes sense. It makes absolute sense, yeah. right? Yeah. Because nothing that they're doing on face value makes any sense at all. But then when you start looking underneath it, it all adds up. They need to gain control of all the assets and mm -hmm. to be collateral for this global digital currency that they're intending to roll out. Yes. Mm -hmm. And again, because if, if, if Russia has, is a, a sovereign country with control over that kind of assets, then um, that doesn't fit into their model. That's like, because that's, that's ownership. That's independence. And right. They want to have a global control system. Right. So and let me Russia ask. Russia needs to be broken up. Yeah. So okay. how many people, I'm just curious compared to, you know, over here, like how many people are you seeing by you that they get this kind of bigger picture on what's going on and the, so the food grab and the land grab and with the farmers and fishermen. And I'm so glad you covered the fishermen as well, because I've been wondering 
about that because they're attacking it on so many fronts. Mm-hmm. And then they come out with their sustainable goal, you know, about protecting the waters, which is an absolute joke. So, so what are you seeing with people by you as far as who's, who's getting this bigger picture? Uh, that's difficult. So in, in the Netherlands, we have a very vibrant new media. And I think the people that avidly follow this, they, most of them see it, they really understand it, but it's kind of a bubble because we're so censored. And I also noticed that of the people that follow this after they dropped all the, 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 the COVID stuff about a year ago, they feel a little bit tired of fighting and look at, at this. So I know a lot of people that kind of like went back to their own turf that they, they will say to me, I just want to focus on my life and what I want can do in my life right now. Um, because all this other stuff is too big and I can't do anything about it. And even the people that are kind of more activists, I some are, they see all this stuff as inevitable, but I don't write this to, to scare people. I write this to show what is happening and to get a sense of what can be done. Right. Um, but yeah, so there are people seeing it, but not that many. And then there are also people who they notice that COVID is wrong, but they don't see the issue in Ukraine or with NATO. Um, hmm. So so they will see a part of it, but not the other part. Um, they don't see how it, how how COVID is connected to the financial, to the food, to the other stuff. Um, and then I think still... Uh, yeah, a lot of people are just, it's so weird after everything that happened in, in these COVID years that they can go on with their lives as if nothing had happened. Yeah, I've, it's I It's bizarre, <laughs> isn't right? it? Yeah. What about what about the digital ID front there in your banking system? Like, what are you seeing? Um, are people using QR codes, using their phones when they go to shop or... What do you see on that front? Um, a lot of people using cash, but also a lot of people using it. Still, I think most people are pl- paying with their cards and not with cash. But the people who are aware, they they pay with cash. Um, but I think with the CBDCs, the really tricky thing is, I noticed that people are afraid like for the CBDC. Mm-hmm. But it's not the CBDC or the digital idea. Right. It are a lot of different projects. And for example, years ago, the Dutch government, they created, uh, they said it's kind of like a mailbox. Uh, it's called digital, DigiD, digital ID, digital D. <laughs> but it's a mailbox and uh, the government uses to uh, to send mails to civilians. But if you look into this mailbox now, it has where you live, your car, your education, your, I don't know, like, like it has, and I think mm-hmm. this is already a digital idea. Right. And the government also already has platforms where they can exchange information with banks. So if if I look at the infrastructure that's there, the infrastructure, yeah, that connects almost all my activities that the government knows about with with my finances. It's already there. Right. And then we just had in this past week, I believe it was the G20 
uh, met and they all agreed that they're going to push forward with digital currencies, digital IDs, an entire digital system that they're calling mm -hmm. DPI, which I find interesting. So the digital public infrastructure, which of course is going to have a repository and, and they say that it will um, allow all the members to have access to the DPI information and not just the G20 members, but beyond. They literally say beyond. So <laughs> DPI, as a graphic designer, I look at that and I go, well, that's dots per inch. Okay, so a QR code is one inch by one inch minimum, and it's got 300 DPI, and I'm just my brain. <laughs> so, so they all just agreed, yes, we're going to push forward with this, this digital public infrastructure. It's necessary. It'll be all inclusive and yada, yada, yada. But uh -huh. one of the things I keep emphasizing, which I'm covering in this big report I'm working on right now, because stuff is accelerating on so many levels and other areas that I don't think people are even aware of, that the CBDC, like kind of what you were just talking about, it's not, that is not the clink, you know, that's not like the key mm -hmm. in the lock. That's not what closes and seals this deal. They've uh -huh. already got, a whole bunch of stuff in place to where they can lock us in to the digital ID system that's programmable in order to mm -hmm. control our access, our spending, and all of that good stuff um, without even having to have a CBDC. So mm -hmm. I almost feel like there was an intentional um, hard push to get CBDC in the news on a constant steady basis while they're pushing out all these other areas mm -hmm. to lock people in. And then mm -hmm. in the meantime, and I covered this in my book a few years back um, because of what I was reading that Deloitte was putting out who writes, you know, tons of white papers, they work with mm -hmm. WEF and all of them. And they're, they were clearly saying that they want to drive all this through the banks. They want the banks to be the ones to mm -hmm. say, Hey, we're going to create the QR code. That's going to link to your financial account. And mm -hmm. you guys need to be the ones to push the digital ID. And so they want to get all the banks to drive this home. Right. right. We also and have it happening at like the, the driver's license, you know, the DMV facilities and the real ID and all just so many different areas. Right, right. And like you said, Corey, they could implement a CBD system if it was wholesale and people would not even know because on their end, they're still working with their bank. But on the bank's end, they're the ones that are converting and do, work, doing business in the form of CBDC systems. So I, there's, there I are kind, ways. I kind of feel like people would know if the CBDC went into effect because I do think there would be uh, I don't know. I think we'd see something a little more on the front end. However, Fed now, which is piloting and is a gateway, has rolled out through uh, over 35 banks and financial institutions. And I guarantee you that if anybody even knows that they used that rail while they were using their debit cards, mm -hmm. um, that it was in some tiny little sentence in some random email they got from the bank saying, Oh, by the way, we are now in the fed now program, you know? So, <laughs> so yeah, they can, they can do this all kind of under the radar. What were you right. going to say? Elsa? 
Well, I think it's important to reiterate your work on laundering with immunity, because we're talking about institutions that have diplomatic immunity. So it's the central banks, it's the banks under the banks, it's the BIS Bank, it's the UN organizations, and it's all these NGOs that are implementing these policies. So uh, the whole management of our economic and social system is moving to a level where you cannot start a criminal investigation. You cannot turn in a FOIA request. They're diplomatically, you, you cannot do anything. So there's no rule of law anymore. It moves, right. it's all moving to, to a layer where there's no rule of law, but complete control over our lives. And that's something that really should concern everyone. Right, 100%. And they've been working on this since, you know, right after World War II adding up to, uh, we have 76 organizations. I believe it's 20 or 22 of those alone are the UN. And then you've got like like all the branches of the uh, organization of American states. And, mm -hmm. and then you've got, and when you look at those organizations and you go, oh, wait, well, there's the fish and the wildlife and there's the postal union and there's space and there's the banks and you're going, this is an entire economic structure. They've got all the organizations in that they, that they wanted to be the future rulers. They've been working towards this for a long time. So, so solutions. So what are your thoughts on, on, you know, I mean, it all just feel, it does, it feels so daunting and, and I can understand, you know, the kind of helpless, hopeless feeling that, that people have, but, um, but we do um, as individuals need to fight this. So what is it you're, you're thinking? There are four things. So one, and that's a very important one is seeing the narratives and keep it combating them. So the narrative is, is man is bad for nature. It's like, no, um, with good stewardship, the world is best off. And how do we take care of that? Uh, if we go along with their narrative, we are talking about, well, there's environmental protection, how much damage is allowed, how much damage is not allowed. It's like, no, this is not about environmental protection. This is about uh, an attack on property rights, an attack on freedom, an attack on autonomy. So we need to have independence, like access to nature, access to food, uh, food self-sufficiency, those need to be on the top of the policy agenda. So even though um, it's a big thing to, to think about, yeah, shifting big narratives, but the biggest changes comes from a shift in ideas and a shift from perspective. So to see like the, the discussion, because even like when the new media, I often see like the, the, the legacy media or the mass media is putting forward a problem and we are giving the kind of like like uh, feedback or response, but still within their parameters. But we have to shift the whole whole narrative, like the whole the whole basis of the debate. I think that's very important. And then very practical as a consumer, vote with your dollars. Like the small farmers are being pushed out by by all these um, corporations. So if you buy cheap food. You're basically financing, um, yeah, people that, that your enslavement, not yes. to mention your health. I mean, give, you know, <laughs> compromising your health. 
So I know, like, uh, I know a lot of people already have financial issues, and but find a way. Like, I have a farmer in the in the neighborhood, and they have like, uh, they they have a package. Uh, like each week, you just get the the season uh, vegetables, and it's fully organic. But because it's seasonal, it's a lot cheaper. So, um. Yeah, there are a lot of opportunities, but I would really say, like, don't finance your enemy. Like, we should start a campaign, boycott Big Act. It's a push to centralize the food production. And the only way to step out of it is to support the farmers that we have left. Uh, so so we all need to be creative in our own way to, uh, to source healthy food, local, that's been produced without pesticides and all the other... Garbage. stuff that goes wrong in the co corporate system um so that's like as a consumer make a very conscious choice then um as a civilian this is still like i'm not that confident about like political solutions but this is a policy issue so we need to start discussing the policies or or have uh, like activism to to push for different types of policies and again, then this narrative is very important. And the other one is, but that's for the people who still have money for investments, invest in farms. So a yes. lot of them are very leveraged. They are in a financially difficult situation. And for example, there was one farm in the Netherlands and he wanted to be less dependent on, um, on banks. So he started uh, selling plots for, I think, 20K like you could get like a piece of his land and then you can lease it back to him and in return uh yeah you get the food that he produces but in this way you can love community it own farm and it's much more difficult to attack such a farm of course right uh, and it also connects people to the food again so i think really for the people who are financially savvy, we need to set up new types of investment vehicles to really save the farms that are there. And even also what happens with the industrial farms, they're very highly leveraged. And at some point, um, it cannot be inherited anymore. So then the big institutional players come in and they buy up the farm and it becomes a corporate farm. And this is not a solution. So I do think we need a transition from industrial to more like regenerative uh, systems. But if we can have some sort of like investment fund um, that sets up a real transition plan and will buy a, such a farmer, sets up a transition plan, perhaps it, it, it can be more decentralized. Um, there are a lot of barriers of entry for people who want to start, start new farms. So this could also be a way to let people who want to start a farm, um, let them start a farm by breaking up some of the industrial farms if they've been bought up in by good players. So yeah, I would think like a financial um, investment innovation, uh, your choices as a consumer, and um, yeah, what you do as a civilian to the, the, the political narrative agenda. That's so wild because a couple months ago, I actually had almost what you're describing. I had almost that identical idea. I was sitting here thinking about it and I'm like, why couldn't some of these farmers who have, you know, a couple hundred acres and they're, they're starting to hurt because of all the policies and regulations. 
what if they were to, you know, if they had enough like road frontage, because of course mm-hmm. there's always stipulations, you can only parcel it out in two acres or five acres or what have you. And they could kind of parse do small parcels, you know, along the outer edge of their property and they could get, you know, pe- but actually sell it to people who want to sort of homestead and mm-hmm. work together, almost like a little small farming community, they could buy from the farm. So, yes. so now they're earning off their land, you know, they now have a little home, they're kind of building a community at the same time. And maybe they're growing things that the farmer's not growing and they could do like a little trade with stuff. And yes. And, and instead of them buying, use, utilizing a bank, I was thinking, well, if we had like the middleman, we had like some good people that are, you know, have money that could be the mm. investors and they can make the payments to them instead of the mortgage. So it was almost identical to what you just, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love the idea of either creating or joining some sort of a co-op along those same lines where everybody's kind of putting money in to invest in this particular farmer. And in return, they're getting their groceries direct from the farmer. It's a reciprocal sort of relationship. And Mm -hmm. probably I think if you had enough people involved in the same sort of co-op, it would be the same as or less than what you're spending at the grocery store with inflation anyways, right? Yes, definitely. So that was interesting because I buy directly like, like from farmers and, um, and the inflation was the the supermarkets added a lot of um they kind of like like surfed the wave of the inflation so they added a lot of markup in addition to the inflation so buying directly from farmers was also uh better than the supermarket last year right excellent right. excellent a couple more points that um along the lines of solutions um i think that um, uh, as far as addressing the narrative, we've got to uh, promote the truth about personal property because I think mm-hmm. that as you've highlighted so succinctly is that this is really attack on personal property because that's the key towards, you know, autonomy and freedom. Mm-hmm. So, you know, promoting the idea of ownership, ownership of homes or of land, and at the same time getting out of this sort of debt-based imprisonment system that we've been a- – acclimated to our entire lives right Mm. somehow trying to get away from that debt-based system and that government dependence system Mm -hmm. and becoming more uh personally sovereign personally free yeah so yeah this is also part of the report i won't go into the, the the full details right now so the full report you can find on the solari report from catherine austin fitz but what I go into about these property rights, apparently in the American Declaration of Independence, uh, you have this sentence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This sentence was taken from John Locke, and it didn't used to be the pursuit of happiness, but he was talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of estate, of property. Because mm. the founding fathers recognized that private property was the basis for uh, wealth generation and freedom. And they felt that um, freedom could not be separated from property. So the government was there to protect private property because that was the only foundation for freedom. And then it's interesting to think about the major socialist system 
um, that all uh, won't allow any private property. And that's something that we are counting, running into now as well. So as my follow-up research, I actually, apparently the US has a big property rights movement. And I would like to look more into the kind of like philosophical, conceptual ideas and how that was part of the of the, the government's model uh, about pr property and property rights, because I think it's really foundational and none of us really were taught this in our education. Right. Mm, that's I, really interesting. Wow. So, <laughs> wow. So tell people where they can find you and your work, your social media and mm -hmm. the site that you write for. And, and you've done a few reports now with Catherine on Solari.com. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I did two uh, reports on uh, solary.com, one about farmer food, and that's really the companion research about like the whole takeover of our food system and making it very synthetic and GMO. And I write for the Andere Krant, um, uh, and they have um, a YouTube and Odyssey channel. There are a lot of uh, English interviews on there as well. My website is uh, Uh I have a newsletter, but I haven't sent one in a while. Um, but if you apply when I when I send out a new letter, you'll be on the list. Uh, I am on Twitter and Gap. I still do Twitter a little bit, but I have a shadow ban, so it's not so interesting. <laughs> but I just don't have a lot of followers on Gap. So, um, yeah, so that's where you can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and going over this and thanks for doing all this work. I, I not, I don't want to put the word fun in there, but I would have actually really enjoyed doing a report like this, you know, and getting to actually go and meet the people. This is like the kind of, I've always wanted to do that to take like six months, travel the country and go meet with farmers and ranchers and just talk to them firsthand and see, you know, what all's going on and what the struggles are and what they're what they're up against so so thank you for doing this you're very welcome well i actually love doing this so i'm also so grateful that um catherine is giving me these opportunities for these type of deep dives because yeah. yeah it's uh yeah it's really nice to do yes well thanks elza really thank appreciate you. it thank you so much elza for joining us today we really loved hearing everything about your report be sure to check out her report on solari.com and all of the places where elza you can find elza that she just mentioned and we'll leave some links in the description below and please be sure to share this podcast we're on bitshoot foxhole gab tv iHeartRadio, odyssey pilled rumble soundcloud spotify stitcher tune in no longer on youtube so be sure to subscribe to our other platforms and we'll see you back next time right here on dig it Thank you.